Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you, alive and well. I made it. Uh, appreciate your grace. Thankful for Nathan uh, filling in at the last minute. Thankful for Hebron and their ministry and just what God has done in that church over the last few years is, uh, is truly a work of God. And thankful for those guys. Thankful for Nathan and his friendship and for stepping in for me last week while I was out. If you got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, we're still in Isaiah. Um, we will be looking at, Lord willing, two chapters today, Isaiah 3 and 4. Isaiah 4 is only six, chapter, six verses long, and so, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to make it through all of this. The last time we were in Isaiah, a couple of weeks ago, we covered chapter 2. And chapter 2, if you recall, it began with a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it ended with a vision of judgment, God bringing judgment on the pride of man. And so it began with a vision of glory, and it ended with a vision of judgment. Well, our passage this morning, chapters 3 and 4, will do just the opposite. It will begin with a vision of judgment, and it will end with a vision of the new Jerusalem. And so where we left off last week in a vision of judgment is where we will begin in chapter 3 with a vision of judgment. And where we began last week is where we will end up today with a vision of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven for in the new heaven and the new earth um, and see Jesus reign there. So let's read Isaiah chapters 3. And four. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes. And infants shall rule over them, and the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of the father, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule." In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. What his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. And they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. 
The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword. And your mighty men in battle. And her gate shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been re recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's pray. Father, we return thanks to you for this book that we hold in our hands. We thank you for your inspired word. And we ask humbly now, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, and Lord, that you would speak to us from your word in such a way that you would change us to look more like your son, Jesus, by your grace, for your glory. Do what you must do in us so that we are transformed into your son's likeness and give you glory with our lives until you bring us home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the judgment of chapter 3 is accomplished by the Lord taking something away from his people. Verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah. 
Sometimes the Lord has to take something away from his people so that he can give them something better and something more. Sometimes God takes away that which we have grown to depend on in our lives. He takes away from us that which we have begun to love inordinately instead of the Lord. That which we've begun to find satisfaction and delight in instead of Him. He takes these things away from us so that He can give us that which we can truly depend on. That which is truly worthy a worthy object of our love and affection, and that which can only give us lasting satisfaction and delight, which is himself. And this is the primary message of Isaiah chapters 3 and 4, that God will take away so that he can give something better and something more. Chapter 3 is all about God bringing judgment on His people. And this judgment is a judgment of loss. They lose something because God takes it away from them. And then chapter 4 is all about God giving them something better. Now the judgment of loss that we see prophesied in chapter 3 comes in the way of two broad pictures. One that we find in verses 1 through 7, and then one that comes later in chapter 3. First, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see this judgment of loss come in the form of a picture of the collapse of a society. A complete and utter total collapse of society. This collapse of society begins in verse 1 when Isaiah says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. This is a harsh treat, uh, judgment. This is a harsh judgment. This is their very source of sustaining life. Bread and water, their ability to eat, their, uh, Judah's ability to support themselves. And feed themselves. The collapse of society continues in verses 2 and 3 with the loss of leadership, with the loss of systems of support and, and, and structure in that society that, that keeps that society going. These will be taken away. He says in verse 2, I will take away the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful musician and the expert in charms. These were positions of leadership and these were positions and offices in that society that cared for the people, that took care of the people and provided structure and support for that society. And represented all of these systems for support. And Isaiah says that God is going to take these away in judgment. So great will this collapse of society be. The verse 4 says, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Probably a reference to immature, inexperienced, and capricious leadership. 
In other words, he will take away your existing leadership, your existing rulers, and replace them with leaders who act like immature boys. And we probably don't have to look far in our own day in society to see examples of this today. The result will be oppression and injustice. Verse 5, and the people will oppress one another. And everyone, his fellow, and everyone, his neighbor, the youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. What a terrible world to live in. Oppression will be rampant. Every neighbor will oppress his neighbor. The, 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 the young, the youth, will be insolent to the elder. That, that word insolent means to act stormily. That's why the New American Standard translates that phrase, the youth will storm against the elder. What an indictment against a society. It will get so bad, in fact, that nobody will want to lead. Verse 6 shows how low the bar will be set in order to qualify to be a leader in that day. He says, for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. We're entering into a season as a church of recommending new elders and new deacons, and we know that the bar that is set in Scripture for those offices is set very high as we see the qualifications, the bar set by God himself in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But Isaiah speaks of a day when the collapse of society will be so great, so great, in fact, that the bar will be set so low, they'll lower the bar for leadership so much that if you've got a coat, you qualify to lead. But even then, nobody will want to lead. Verse 7, in that day, his brother will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. In other words, I refuse to take the mantle of leadership. I don't want to be the leader. After all, it's just, as he says in verse 6, a heap of ruins. Who wants to lead that? I think it's noteworthy that when Isaiah is warning here of the impending collapse of society, he puts great emphasis here on problems associated with leadership, whether it's the removal of good leadership or the installment of immature and inadequate leadership or the complete absence of anyone willing to step up and serve in leadership. This is a picture here of complete and total collapse of society. The systems of support in that society, the, the, the structures that keep it going, all supply of bread and water are taken away and the result is rampant oppression and injustice. Quite a picture of judgment through loss. Now, before we get to Isaiah's second picture of judgment and loss in this passage, Isaiah answers here in the middle part of chapter 3 a question that his readers were probably asking at this point, which is, why? God, why would you do this to Judah? Why would you do this to your people? And he answers that question in verses 8 through 15. 
verses 8 through 15, we see a reasoning for this judgment, why it's happening. And in this reasoning, we find three things. We find a cause for the judgment, we find a pronouncement of judgment, and then we see a court scene where God himself justifies this judgment. It's just. First, the cause of judgment in verses 8 and 9. The cause of judgment is sin. He writes, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. They've stumbled in sin. They have fallen from grace. And in what way? He goes on to say, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They've disobeyed God in both their words and their actions. And they're living in defiance of God's glorious presence. Now that's a scary place to be. On one hand, to perfectly be willing to acknowledge that God is present. Yahweh is present and yet not care. And live in open defiance of his glorious presence. In fact, so shameless shall shall be their their defiance of God that he goes on to write in verse 9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. They don't care. They're doing what they want. They don't even try to hide it. They've become so so self-indulgent and arrogant that they openly flaunt their sin without any hint of shame whatsoever. And again, if this is not a description of our day today, I don't know what is. So the root cause of the judgment that's described in verses 1 through 7 and the cause for the judgment that will be described later in chapter 3 is sin and rebellion against God. And God, as a just and righteous judge, He must answer sin and rebellion with judgment. And so the cause of judgment in verses 8 and 9 is followed by the announcement of judgment in verses 9 and 12. He's told us what the cause is. It's because you've rebelled. It's because you've sinned. And so now he pronounces judgment, and he does that by way of woes. Now, there are three things I want us to briefly observe uh, from these three and a half verses from the second half of verse 9 to verse 12. First, we're, we're told here that the people are getting what they deserve. They're getting what they deserve. Verse verse 9, at the end of verse 9 says, Woe to them, for they have brought this evil on themselves. In other words, this judgment is earned. It's what they deserve because of how they have rebelled. They've brought it on themselves. We also see this in verse 11. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. In other words, the wicked are going to receive this judgment because of their wickedness. And we should hear, church, the echo of the Apostle Paul as he writes in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What we earn because of our rebellion against God what we deserve because of our sin and doing our thing instead of his thing, what we deserve, what we earn, is judgment. 
And so the people get what they deserve. The second thing to note here is that there is a promise of salvation for the righteous. Look at verse 10. He writes, tell the righteous that it shall be, it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. In other words, the wicked will get what they deserve and the righteous will get what they deserve. Now, he doesn't tell us here how, how one can be righteous when all have sinned. That's not the point of this text. Here, he simply tells them that if you're declared righteous as opposed to sinful, then you too will get a just recompense. Now, as those who live on this side of Jesus' earthly ministry, who know about his life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, we know that sinners like us can only be made righteous, can only be declared righteous through repentance of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. When we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross in our place, we are forgiven the debt that we owe. We are justified to stand in the presence of a holy God and we are granted the very righteousness of Jesus himself who, who was the only one who ever lived that never sinned, never disobeyed God, never broke the law. We are granted his righteousness. It gets credited to our account by faith. And those who wear the robe of Jesus' righteousness by faith will not be exposed to judgment, but rather will be saved from judgment to God. And so there's a promise of, of salvation for those who are declared righteous. And then the third thing to note from these verses where we hear God announcing judgment um, is verse 12 where we see God lamenting over the fallen condition of his people. Hear, hear the heart of God here in verse 12. As he looks at his people and the utter and complete collapse of society that has occurred, he says, my people... Infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Again, we see this emphasis of Isaiah on the leadership problem in their fallen condition. You have infants ruling over you, men who act like babies, capricious Leadership who capriciously oppressed the people without any sense of justice. Women rule over you, which either points to men acting like women or more likely a reversal of societal norms. Either because the men have been killed off at this point or because the men have become passive and will no longer step up to lead. Either way, women have had to step in and lead. He says, your guides, your leaders, your rulers mislead you. And then there's a strange phrase here that they've swallowed up the course of your paths. That, that means, guys, I gave you a path. God has given you a path. It was a narrow path, but it was a path to walk. But as a result of these evil, wayward leaders, they've obliterated that path. 
through their oppression and their evil requirements. Not only can you no longer see the path, much less can you follow it. And certainly we see that in our day and age. The further, the closer we get to Jesus' return, that the leaders in the world outside these walls will obliterate the path that God has given us. And that's why we need to stay and remain people of this book. Because church, this is where we find the path. This is where God lays it out for us. It's a narrow path, but it's a path with the Spirit by the grace of God. He walks with us. And the further we get away from this, the more our path will be swallowed up out there. But that's what happens to them. And God laments this. He laments of the condition that they find themselves in while at the same time pronouncing that this judgment is just. And so the final bit of this middle section where he's announcing judgment comes in verses 13 through 15 where we find a justification for this judgment. Verses 13 through 15 play out like a court scene where God brings charges against the people and makes his case before judgment is rendered. Verse 13, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the people. So he stands as both prosecutor and judge to make his case against the people. Verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of the people. Again, an emphasis on the leadership. He holds the leaders accountable here. And what does he say to them? He says, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. You, leaders, you are the reason for the supply of bread and water being gone. You're the ones who have done this. You weren't content with what you had, and so you robbed from the poor. Verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. A very graphic way of referring to how they would steal the wheat from the poor and grind it up into their mill to make flowers. It was as if they were grinding the very face of his people. The case has been made here against the people. And God is justified now in bringing judgment on them for their sin. And so what we have in the remainder of chapter 3 is a second picture of judgment through loss. The first picture of judgment through loss, again, was the collapse of society. Then we have that reasoning for the judgment, and now we have the second picture of judgment through loss. And this is a picture of the extravagant indulgences of the women of Jerusalem. We find this in verses 16 of chapter 3, and it extends all the way to verse 1 of chapter 4. And, and while I'm sure that there were probably many women who looked like this and acted like this in the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, I also think he intends for this picture to be representative of an entire society, an entire society that has gone rampant in extravagant indulgences, both men and women, who, who are intoxicated with the arrogant pursuit of their own wealth, their own vainglory, their own beauty, and their own importance. Now there's two parts to this picture. The first part is in verses 16 through 24, where, where he focuses on their outward beauty and the implements of their adornment. 
And God says he's going to take these away. He's going to take away their outward beauty, <coughs> excuse me, and their implements of adornment, and he's going to replace it with ugliness, with shame and impoverishment. Verse 16, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, there's a picture there of their prideful arrogance. They've got their noses upturned, their, their, their necks outstretched. They're prideful in their arrogance, glancing wantonly with their eyes, seductively trying to lure men into their web, trying to appear seductive, trying to appear sexually desirable, drawing attention to themselves. He says, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. That's a reference to the bracelets that they would wear on their ankles that would tinkle as they walk along, dance along, strutting their way, trying to draw attention to themselves. Isaiah points out their pride, their wanton attempts to sexually allure men, to seduce men, and their displays of, of wealth and affluence, displays of their beauty. And because these things are their focus, and because these are the things that drive them, what will God do? Verse 17. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Tragically, the Lord will take away their beauty and their extravagance and replace it with ugliness, reproach, and will take away whatever modesty is left in them and replace it with shame. Their wealth and extravagance are further depicted in verses 18 through 23 by these implements or accessories for their luxurious lifestyle. And God says he will take these away from them as well. Verse 18, in that day the Lord will take away, listen to this list, the finery of their anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. They're just things. Many of the women in this very room probably own most of those things, if not all of them. Well, probably not all of them. If you've got a festal robe, that'd be cool. Or a turban, maybe. But, but these are just things. They're just things. The, the Lord is not saying that these things are bad or wrong in and of themselves. Unless your focus has become all about outward appearance and outward adornment. And then these things simply become instruments to feed their obsession to look prettier, to look sexier, and to look more desirable. Church Peter, the apostle, warns explicitly the church about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He exhorts the women 
Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning, that is, let the motive of it, let the reason for it, let the purpose behind it be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Church, Christian women should focus more on adorning themselves with Jesus, adorning themselves with Christ on the inside, than adorning themselves on the outside. It's not about the thing itself. It's not about explicitly what you wear. It's why you're wearing it. Is it to seduce men? Is it for this outward desire to flaunt something? Or is it to adorn yourself with Christ on the inside? May that be the heart of the women of our church to desire to have that which in God's sight is very precious. Isaiah seems to say that these implements of adornment in verses 18 through 23 will will be taken away from the women of Jerusalem because of their pride because of their obsession with self, their obsession with beauty, because of their wanton sexuality and their compulsion to do whatever was needed in order to appear sexually desirable and because of their need to flaunt their beauty, their wealth, and their affluence. It wasn't because they wore jewelry. It wasn't because they had nice clothes or or nice hair. It wasn't because they were pretty. It wasn't because they were wealthy. It was because they had become so intoxicated with their own glory and their own beauty and their own wealth that they had no room in their heart for God. In reality, they had begun to worship self rather than God. And so these implements of adornment, God says, I will take them away. And he replaces them with items of reproach. Verse 24. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding, instead of beauty. And then as, as if that was not enough, there's a second part of this picture of judgment through less and that's in verses 25 through 41 where where the focus shifts to the objective of their adornment and what was the objective of their adornment what was the target of their seduction man and now he's going to be taken away verse 25 your men will fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle the men whom they work so hard to seduce so hard to attract they're gone now they've fallen by the sword Verse 26, her gates and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. How pitiful is the picture of this once proud woman. And then this picture concludes in verse 1 of chapter 4. When he says, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will, we will eat our own bread, we'll wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. In other words, in that day, the women will so outnumber the men because, again, the men have died by the sword at this point. Six out of every seven men are gone. 
And in that day, seven women will take hold of one man saying, marry me, marry me. I'll feed myself. I'll clothe myself. You don't have to do anything. Just give me your name so that I can avoid this, this reproach. And so to summarize these pictures, Isaiah calls out to the people and he paints a picture of loss. Judgment through loss. Loss of security, loss of hope, loss of support in that society, loss of wealth, loss of beauty, loss of vainglory. That's a lot of loss. And it happens because of sin. It happens because of rebellion against God. Now, before we get to the good news, before we turn the corner and, and talk about what God's people gain as a result of all this loss, I want us to consider the time frame of this prophecy's fulfillment. And this is important because this, this will help us to sift through how we apply a passage of Scripture like this. First, I think that we can see partial fulfillment of this prophecy of judgment through loss in Isaiah's near future. The Assyrian Empire, at this point as he's pronouncing these prophecies, they are in slumber. But that great war machine to the north will soon awaken during Isaiah's lifetime and turn on first the northern kingdom of Israel and wipe them out. And then it will turn on the southern kingdom of Judah. And while the Assyrian siege on Judah would fall short of defeating Jerusalem, the subsequent Babylonian empire will succeed where it fell off and will come upon them, defeat them, and lead God's people away into exile. And much of this prophecy that's given here would in fact occur during the relentless siege and subsequent eventual fall of Judah. Loss of leadership, loss of security, loss of support, loss of wealth, loss of beauty and vainglory, and it will be replaced with the evil and capricious leadership of first the Babylonians and then the great Persian Empire. The security and wealth of their society will be replaced with oppression and injustice and the extravagance and opulence of their culture replaced with destitution and impoverishment in exile. And so in a very real sense, Isaiah was calling out and warning the people of his day that judgment by way of loss was coming, and it's coming soon as a result of sin. But secondly, I think we also see partial fulfillment of these prophecies in our day today. Certainly we experience inordinate inadequacies in leadership today both in the leadership politically in our nation as well as leadership even in the church as a result of sin all human leadership is flawed our political leaders are flawed our church leaders our elders and pastors are flawed we have an ingrained sin nature that is still active in us and the people suffer as a result. 
We look around the day, we know that oppression and injustice is not something that was relegated to the 8th century before Christ. And certainly, the focus on outward beauty and adornment is as strong today as it's probably ever been. The women of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day would have been the influencers on TikTok today. And the degree to which we see these worldly influences beginning to infiltrate the body of Christ, the degree to which we see these tendencies begin to show up in us, church. Let us remember Peter's warning in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, when he said it is time for judgment and let judgment begin with the household of God. Church, church, we must discipline ourselves and fight against sin. We must link arms with one another to fight against the sin that is coming at us and coming from out within us in our own flesh. We must fight against this. We must turn from these worldly influences, church, or else the Lord will bring discipline on the church. And as we consider and as we look around today and we encounter flawed leadership, oppression and injustice, and the vanity of self-glorification in our day and in our culture. It should point us to the need for God to bring a purifying judgment in order to make way for something better. A new heaven, a new earth, when all this will be stripped away and we, God's people, will be given so much more. And that leads us to the third time frame of fulfillment for these prophecies of judgment through loss. That there will one day, church, be complete fulfillment of these prophecies in the coming day of the Lord that Isaiah has been speaking of. As I read my Bible, however bad it is today, it's going to get worse, not better. And the utter hopelessness and despair that Isaiah articulates here in both the picture of the collapse of society and in the picture of the extravagant indulgences of the women and the people of Jerusalem, these will find fulfillment in whole one day when Jesus comes back with his rod of judgment. So there's these three time frames of fulfillment, and these three time frames of fulfillment for judgment through loss also hold true for the judgment or the prophecy of God giving us something better after the purifying fire of judgment, which is the prophecy that we find unveiled in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So I want to read this again, and then I want us to return to those three time frames of fulfillment. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. 
For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So first let's consider partial fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah's near future. This passage describes in part the return of God's people from exile. In that day, the branch of the Lord, referring to new growth, new growth from the vine of God's people, he says, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the reference here to the survivors of Israel, that they're the ones who survived the exile. They've come back now and returned to the promised land. And we read about them in books like Ezra and Nehemiah as they come back to the promised land and they rebuild Zion, they rebuild Jerusalem. They're they're the survivors of Israel. The remnant of Jerusalem in verse 3 will be those who are, as he says, recorded as citizens of the restored Jerusalem. And the promised land in that day will indeed be their pride and their honor. For them, the Lord will have washed away the reproach of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. He says, by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And for them in that day, that spirit of judgment and that spirit of burning was the Assyrian Empire and then ultimately the Babylonian Empire. That God will have used those empires, those pagan lands and empires and armies as a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning and purifying for his people. And through them, he will have washed away the reproach of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. But this return from exile is only partial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies here. Because, for example, there's no pillar of cloud, no pillar of fire that will be over the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. In fact, these pillars, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, representing God's presence with his people, they ceased once Solomon first built the temple there in Jerusalem. There's no more of them after that. And that was over 100 years before Isaiah came on the scene. And so that doesn't find fulfillment in the exile. And so while the people returning to Jerusalem after the exile would see partial fulfillment of this, reading this, they would say, yeah, I see some of this happening. Still, it would point them forward. It would still point them to the future, to a later time. As with the prophecy of judgment, so with this prophecy of gain it also finds partial fulfillment in our day today. In the Old Testament, the branch refers to the shoot or the sapling, the new growth from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. David was the greatest king of Israel. But David himself was given a promise, a promise that one from his line, a shoot from his line, a seed or a sapling from his line would one day sit on the throne, his throne, the Davidic throne, forever and rule his people forever. And so this branch of the Lord in verse 2 is Jesus. It's Jesus himself. This is a theme that Isaiah will continue to develop throughout this book. In fact, the Jewish Targum which is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, translates Isaiah 4-2 this way, At that time shall the Messiah of the Lord 
be for joy and for glory to those that are escaped. And so for the church today, the branch of the Lord has come. And we look to him and we find him to be glorious and beautiful. And we in the church of Jesus Christ, we are the remnant of Israel today. We are the remnant of Israel who, as verse 3 says, are called holy. Oh, how can, how can filthy sinners like us be called holy? Because verse 4, the Lord has washed away the filth of our sin and cleansed the bloodstains from us. And how did that happen? Verse 4, by a spirit of judgment and burning, whereby the Lord himself endured the judgment that we deserve. And the wrath of God that we deserve to have poured out on us by God's grace was poured out on his son. He received the judgment that we deserve. He took the wrath that we deserve. And so we, we today who have trusted in Christ, who've turned from sin and placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope, we are the remnant of Israel who now by God's grace are called holy and have been cleansed and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And even today, the Lord is with us. We don't have a pillar of cloud. We don't have a pillar of fire. But indeed, the Lord himself is with us. His spirit indwells us. His spirit is here. The spirit of Christ is here when his people gather as the church. See, by faith in Jesus, the Lord has taken away our pursuit of security and support and hope, our pursuit of beauty and significance, and replaced them with the beauty and the security that is found in Christ. So for this reason, part of our application should be to stop finding ultimate security and hope in man. Stop delighting in and pursuing glory in ourselves. Stop flaunting wealth and affluence in hopes of seducing a mate or improving our position in life. Instead, we find our ultimate security and hope in Christ. Our greatest joy and our most supreme delight in life is Jesus. It's not about our glory, but His it's not about our beauty or our wealth, but the beauty of Christ and the wealth of his kingdom. But as beautiful as that is, still that is only partial fulfillment. Complete fulfillment is coming. And it's coming on that day when Christ returns and the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and the Lord assumes the rightful place on his throne and he reigns in the new heaven and the new earth with us with his people forever verse 2 in that day the branch of the lord shall be called beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of israel which is those who have turned from their sin and trusted in christ alone Verse 3, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Our holiness will be perfected. 
He calls us positionally holy today, and he's working on us to sanctify us and make us holy. But one day, that day, on that day, our holiness will be perfected. No more indwelling sin. No more rebellion. We will be holy as he is holy. And who will comprise this holy people? Verse 3, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And we remember that the book of Revelation tells us when those names were written into that book, before the foundation of the world. If Jesus has saved you, that means that before you were born, before you were a twinkle in your mama's eye, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And on that day, we will walk into the new Zion, washed and cleansed by the blood of this Lamb. And we're told in verse 5, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. The pillar of fire cloud the pillar of of fire will return symbolically representing the tangible presence of God that we will be among you see today we only know in part but then we will know fully today we see dimly as in a mirror but then our faith will be made sight and we shall see the Lord in all of his manifest glory and there will be this canopy I love this in scripture The canopy always refers to a wedding scene. This is a wedding canopy. And and the bride, the church of Jesus, will be reunited with her groom, the Lord Jesus, once again on that day. And in him, we will find eternal shade and refuge and shelter from the heat of sin and from the storm of judgment. He The Lord Christ will be our rest. And since our ultimate fulfillment of both the prophecy of loss that Isaiah gives us here, as well as the prophecy of gain, is found in the coming day of the Lord, then our primary application of this text should proceed from that glorious truth. So when we encounter poor leadership today, inadequate leadership, capricious leadership, flawed leadership, whether it's in the world or in the church, our minds should immediately be directed to the day of the Lord when all human leadership will give way to the return of the King. And he will reign in perfect peace and perfect wisdom and perfect justice and perfect everything forever. When we see cracks in the foundation of society, And it looks as though society is beginning to crumble and fall and collapse. We should remind ourselves and one another that a new city is coming. And the foundation of this new city is permanent. And it will never crack. And it will never crumble. When we see our world drunk on self-advancement and self-promotion. And infatuated with beauty and wealth and sex and success, and doing everything it can to maximize enjoyment and comfort and indulgence. And and church, 
when we hear the siren call of those indulgences ourselves from the deep recesses of our own flesh. Let us give no quarter to the enemy. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And let us look to that new city that is coming, church, where the paltry desires of our flesh in this world will give way on that day to true security, true beauty, and true glory. Let's pray. Father, it is sobering for us to read these words of judgment. And in the moment in which we perhaps are tempted to think that this is unfair, show us the vileness of our own sin. Show us the depravity of our own heart. Make us to feel the weight of our own guilt and the significance of what we owe to you as a result. And Father, we are reminded in the New Jerusalem that the way that that is a reality is because you made a way to redeem sinners like us so that we might escape judgment and might be reunited to you. Father, I think the call of this passage is for us to live in light of that, to long for that new city, but to live in light of what you have done for us and to hold out the hope of that plan of redemption in the gospel to those for whom this warning of judgment is a stark reality. Move in us and among us, Father, to be used by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.